0: dmf i am your host justin yachts and today is part two of my interview with tom ackerman he's a cinematographer he has done films such as beetlejuice and anchorman enjoy all right moving on a little bit here i want to talk a little bit about uh, canon films what was that like working with them they're very like run and gun I I imagine where it's just like
1: we're going <laughs> well I would I would say certainly run and gun with respect to uh paying their bills before they leave town <laughs> but uh they they were um certainly I would have to say prof- very professional in the in the way they made films they made some widely released films that look good structurally they were good films runaway train i think was one new year's evil is the movie that i shot it was really the first feature that i had ever done and uh, yeah. i i can look at it today it was done very low budget i think around seven or eight hundred thousand which even in uh, 1979 or whenever we did it in that era you could for four weeks. You could do a, a a good film for that. You know, a well-crafted film. And in fact, I can look at the thing today without uh, any embarrassment whatsoever about the photography. Anyway, it's it's fairly over the top, mm. in a lot of its <laughs> story elements. And you know, it's like the quintessential '70s slasher movie where. For some reason, it's
0: Canon films. That's what they, that's what they did. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It was filmed well.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. And and so uh, for, for my part, it was a great opportunity to shoot a real movie to do all the, to, 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 you know, ramp up the craft to a level that was appropriate and like I say, I can look at it. I, I can screen it now, and I'm not uh, shrinking back into my chair. I've we did a good job. Uh, it, it's very yeah. arch, of course. Very much uh, if someone has got a dagger in their hand, which they frequently do, ready to do some stabbing. You'll get two things for sure. You'll get a nice little glint on the switchblade. Ding! You know. Yeah. Set a light very precisely. And then there was some discretion shown for the actual stabbing activity. You see a you'd see that in a very well-defined shadow. You know, leads to all the all the questions. You see a, a a young woman who's walking past an alley. She hears something and starts and continues to walk down the alley. A couple of things. First of all, why the hell is she doing that? <laughs> no apparent reason. Secondly, we've got the camera way low, dollying down. And so you've got this dramatic low angle. And she's like, if, if that weren't enough to to really, uh, the veracity is already very shaky at this point. And then to top it all off, she comes to a dumpster. A closed <laughs> dumpster, mind you, at the end of the alley. Well, nothing extraordinary. Although if she were listening, she could hear the music ramping up and telling the audience something was weird, was about to happen. And sure enough, well, I think I'll look into the dumpster. Yeah, I know a lot of people who would do exactly that. Yeah, you know, nobody. Park <laughs> Alley, I wonder what's in there. I wonder if there are any, you know. And, of course, point of view from inside. She looks inside, then cut into the dumpster. And, and the, yeah, the guy, with the, Kip Niven with, with a cigarette lighter. Dun, 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 dun. Big big scare moment and totally illogical.
0: But that's what they did. I mean, that's what a lot of those those 80s, 70s slashers did. They were like, it's kind of started with um uh, John Carpenter's, you know, Halloween, which is really well done, but it's done because it's an interesting story to it, and it was very new at the time. And yeah. then you had Friday the 13th, and then it's like, let's just do that, but let's just amp up the gore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then exactly. it was. There was just every, I mean, it's the, um, was it Silent Night? Uh, it's like a, a horror film at Christmas time. I have a friend that was like, he'll take you, we'll have like a Christmas, he'll have like a Christmas party. And instead of showing like Christmas movies, you'd think, he'll show something like Silent Night and I'd be like. Yeah. Ah.
1: It, it, but it was a time of uh, tremendous excess, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's the 80s. Tremendous
1: excess and the worst possible taste, the most, ham-fisted uh crude insulting uh movie you could watch
0: yeah they would they would always go for like the like if you do any research on it you realize that like you can't actually stab somebody like that This the skull is actually too thick to actually penetrate a knife you would actually have you know like it would yeah but we always do that in every movie and it's like doesn't make any sense yeah, no. like that's not how a skull a skull is very hard to break well,
1: that, that's why surgeons have to use a drill to get in there you know exactly uh. <laughs> well, anyway
0: just, that logic goes um so let's talk a little bit about national lampoon's uh, christmas vacation one of the things I, I noticed about it is it's shot very traditionally now you've talked about this in other interviews where you really can't tell the difference between a drama or a comedy but there's something about the way it looked very much. It looks similar. Like you filmed it similar to the way uh gremlins is filmed. Mm-hmm. It's just that, that similar lighting was talk a little bit about lighting that film. Okay. Filming that film. Excuse yeah.
1: me. Um, I have very uh, positive memories of, uh, of shooting that um, Christmas vacation. Um, my, my, my approach to it, and my approach, quite frankly, to every comedy I've ever shot was not to shoot it like a comedy, uh, whatever yeah. that is. I don't know. I mean, uh, there's been some horrendous flat and bright lighting committed in the sense of comedy. I have never yeah. I've worked with some comedy practitioners, including John Hughes, who uh, had no taste for that at all. They wanted the yeah. movie to look like movies. And they would then craft a story that had nothing yeah. to do, that, that, that wanted to be well shot. As a matter of fact, in Christmas Vacation, there's that scene where Chevy haplessly gets locked up in the attic, you know, and and the trap yeah. folds up, and it's it's cold, and he's got an old a mink coat, and he's huddled down, and he's looking at a a wonderful old eight millimeter home movie, and bringing back fond memories. Remember that scene? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that scene was not light and bright. It was an attic. And I didn't cop to anything other than it's a guy in an attic watching a movie. It is sad. So fortunately, fortunately, he's in the attic because that'll help me, you know, steer things a little bit in the sad and lonely direction. I got a, what would it have been, not a telegram the next day from John, but I guess we would be doing Twixes by that time. It said, and he was a night owl. He he didn't look watch dailies until the wee hours of the morning. When I got this the next day. He said, Tom, thank you so much. It looked exactly like every attic I've ever been in. Perfect. Thank yeah. you. You know, words to that effect. So he, <clears throat> excuse me, he, he appreciated good photography. Sometimes it would be joke-oriented photography. Uh, but, but always, I never had any pushback whatsoever on a shot or a sequence or lighting or anything.
0: Is, is it true when uh, Chevy Chase has his big blow-up or whatever that they actually put name tags of what he was saying on the people
1: that they actually did put it
0: when he has the part where you know he finds out he's not going to get the uh yeah. the check in the, the 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 his bonus is really nothing and you know he has the eggnog he just yeah he goes yeah. up there and he say he starts like like the only like uh, kind of like comedy visual gag i would say there is like when you cut to the family their reaction of like oh wow he's losing it yeah um, yeah is it true though when he was doing that scene that they put uh, that they had to he forgot the lines or something so they had to put like name tags on the on the other I don't or is recall, Urban Legend? I don't
1: recall uh, anything like that? Um, okay, and big, a wordy speech, and yeah. He, I mean, there was the wide shot that we did where everyone was um assembled, uh, and he's he's in the adjoining room and they're like audience spread about him. I don't recall any, uh, dialogue aids like that. No.
0: Okay. So then that's just urban legend then. I don't know. I, re- I read that somewhere and I was like, I'm going to ask him about it. Cause he was on set. He knows whether they actually, whether that actually happened or not. It's kind of moving f- forward. You talked a little bit about how when you film somebody at an injury, you know, whether it's for comedy or like, or more dramatic. You, you, you mentioned specifically Dennis, the menace when he falls, you said that you had to change the angle and you said certain injuries can take people or the way it's shot can take people out of the film. Can you give an example of something like that where like you felt like, like, is that just something that like, I don't think they're going to watch it specifically. And, and it's more like a subconscious thing that you're probably getting to.
1: There are two examples that I could offer. One okay. is what you have cited from Christmas Vacation, and it's um, it's it's when, uh, or no, Dennis the Menace, excuse me, mm-hmm. where uh, Walter Matthau is up looking for something in the attic. I don't remember exactly what it was. In the boat? Yeah. No, no. Awesome. no he, he's up in the attic, and he's just, you know, walking along, and he slips on a ball, I think it was, and goes, wham, flat back on his, uh, from a standing position to his, whoa, well, that was classic comedy blocking and choreography that needed to be done very, very carefully, because an ordinary human being would fracture their back in doing that. But there's something yeah. about the extremity, the ludicrous over-the-topness of it that n- no one, you just don't react, frankly. And yeah, already up for the, you kind of in on the joke. Another evidence of choreography helping us dodge the bullet in that respect is in another movie, uh, Rat Race. I don't know if you remember. Mm. Yeah, I've seen that. Rat Race. Okay. Well, uh, Paulini, you know the uh, the Italian, the nutty Italian guy who's a narcoleptic and falls asleep. Oh, Ro-
0: Rowan Atkinson's uh, Rowan Atkinson. yeah. yeah.
1: Anyway, so Rowan is crossing the street, and the hapless delivery driver, who's got a, you know, Wayne Knight's, yeah, Wayne yeah, way uh, hits Paulini, and who goes, and this was the shot. Uh, he you have the impact, you see the vehicle coming, whomp, and then, and he literally arcs through the air and yeah. out the frame. it would be between the impact and that trajectory and then hitting the pavement, it would kill somebody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is so ludicrous and so, no pun intended, over the top, it's it's laughable. It's just yeah. Uh, so that uh, you totally buy the fact that he then, well, then of course, the, the driver comes out. What a brilliant moment! No, no, he's yeah, like, Yeah, he thinks can, he's gonna get sued. <laughs> yeah, what else can go wrong? Uh, he finds out pretty soon when they lose the heart by the side of the road. That was uh, a second blow, yeah. But, but all, what, what, what applies all of this, including the uh, stray dog. Having grabbed the human heart. Yeah, they're like after, they're trying to
0: run after it.
1: Yeah, yeah they're trying to, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it could be considered the most brutal and tasteless thing ever, but it's put in a context. And this is what yeah. a really good comedy director can do. And I would like, <clears throat> excuse me, to think that I can um, help with that process, but. Putting it into a context that is, it's yes, it's violent. Yes, it's, but it's, it's kind of slapstick of a, of a sort.
0: And, and you have the dog there, but yeah, the way it's filmed, it's not, the scene is not about a dog dying. It's basically, you know, they're trying to get the heart, you know? So when he gets it there, you know, he's like, you know, he's like, okay, we need to, Find some, you know, you transition out of that to like, okay, we just need to find somebody who doesn't know anybody, doesn't know anybody, and kill him and just take his heart. Oh, and, and he the, realized
1: <laughs> yeah, the performance was so great the way he, he shifted his attention to uh Rowan at that time. The you know, guy can, can actually commit murder, and he intends to do exactly that.
0: And the guy in Rowan's character has, like, no idea that he's giving him the information he needs for the yeah. character. So he's like, nope, I'm all alone. I have no
1: yeah. one. And he's like, it, he just told him. He just digs himself a hole, and you you can see it coming. That's a great scene. So, it's so funny. <laughs> I love that scene. That picture and, and I will tell you that um, the, Jerry Zucker knows comedy.
0: He does. Like he did Airplane.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? Right. And and uh, and his brother as well. They they know comedy. Um, okay,
0: so you shot Frank and Weenie with uh, Tim Burton when you come back to do Beetlejuice. Had you seen had had you seen him change as a filmmaker?
1: Like like did you notice changes uh, with this approach, or was he always? Well, no, I, I didn't see a change. I saw a progression. Mm. Uh, the, the filmmaker that he was destined to become was happening in every way it seemed very i, I expected expected i mean i saw i was I saw nothing unexpected and uh, so as far as I was concerned, what I saw was a, a the continuing journey of a very a very talented filmmaker now i have i I did a, a short i did a a week of shooting uh in between those two projects Frank and weenie and you know, yeah. It it came on the heels of a disappointment. I uh Tim had initially wanted me to shoot uh Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And to that end, a, a meeting was arranged at the studio and met the producers and the head of studio, and we had a a, a wonderful chat, and it was very uh yeah, it, it was encouraging to to a large extent, but then I uh, a couple of weeks later, by this time, my wife and I were in France, I think, uh, in Bordeaux on on vacation. And um, I get a call from Gersh uh, and, um, ah, Tom, I got bad news for you. They went with somebody else on, uh, you know, on, on uh, the peewee thing. To tell you the truth, I wasn't at all depressed for reasons. A, I am in a lovely place, having a great time with my wife. We're going to celebrate New Year's at yeah. the Prion Hotel in Paris. And we're about to have our first baby. And, you know, I, I was, and I've got plenty of work. I, I never, I wasn't like hard up for something to do. I also yeah. reasoned, I, I couldn't see the rationale uh, on Pee Wee. First of all, I didn't quite have the clout At that point, uh, I was almost there, but I didn't quite have Mm. it. And um, I can understand that the studio might have been a little leery. They would want somebody with more weight, uh, someone just a skosh more affordable, formidable than me at that time. There wouldn't have been any doubt a couple years later after I had shot uh, Back to School, which was a, yeah. song, and um, it's also a good film. Uh, but, but that was not the case then. So anyway, I understood the logic of it. I wasn't thrilled, mm. but I, nor, neither was I uh, morose. Yeah, we weren't you like, morose. this is it, my, my life is over. Yeah, it was just Nothing like. like Indeed, in, in the steps that we took. Oh, but I did go and shoot for a week when uh, Victor Kemper, who did shoot Pee Wee, was uh, took sick with some horrible flu bug or whatever it was. And so I shot, uh, maybe it was more than a week, I don't remember, but, but it was nice because we had a great time shooting together as always. Uh, I, I was happy, very happy with the work. So, and that then came to fruition after I had established kind of, as it were, studio credibility. Studio credibility with uh, Back to School, one of the top one of the top ten grossing domestically released films, and it wasn't and it wasn't uh, and, and it was you know it was out there at any rate, uh, and that was a non a non comedy rating. It was like just one of the ten best and most pro- profitable.
0: What was because you just mentioned Back to School? I just wanted to um, what yeah. was the work
1: like working with Rodney Dangerfield? Great, very yeah. very. Rodney is Rodney and he's kind of a spacey guy, but um, he really could, he could do it. He could do whatever we needed. I mean, it was, you know, it would be like um, I, we would have prepared a shot and uh, tend to be fairly fastidious uh, about marks. Yeah. Yeah. uh, So uh, Rodney would come in from the makeup trailer. Hey Tom. Yeah. Where do I stand? You know, and I well, Rodney's just stand there. See that yellow one? That's that's your mark. Okay, you got it. And that was you know, <laughs> he was extremely accommodating. His performance was exemplary. Uh, it was inspirational to play this ob- absolute jerk. By the way, much credit to the late and wonderful Alan Metter, who helped him play a part for the first time. It wasn't like mm-hmm. Shack. Like doing shtick, but he's really Rodney. Here he was Thornton Mellon and yeah, he had to
0: he had to act. He had to he had to have the because he's carrying the movie, so he has to have the sad scenes. He has to have that you know. He's got a he's got a romance
1: scene with Sally Kellerman. I yeah. you know reading that on the on the script and how do how, I don't know how am I going to light this you know and I chose <laughs> I chose to to make it uh, you know it was a dark living room. You know, and as always, yeah. photograph Sally. She got the benefit of the biggest bounce cards, and you know, uh, lovely. I, mean, I I I basically lavished upon her what I would have been lavishing on rock and roll performers that I was dealing with at the time, and that was to not make it boring, but make it beautiful. But that was yeah, that the the love scene with Sally did give me some cause for uh, concern. All
0: right. So let's uh, jumping back to Beetlejuice. So, so, so you don't get, um, you don't get big uh, Pee Wee's big playhouse. And I think that was like his first big film. And he had to fight, I think, with the studios, you know, mercilessly, uh, Tim Burton. So I'm sure he couldn't like today, he probably could have just, you know, said, look, this is who I want. Whereas there, he didn't have that, you know, kind of say, so you're making Beetlejuice. Um, I was fascinated by how you talked about the distinctions between the three universe. Like there's the place where Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis are. Then there's the, un the, like the afterlife world, which is kind of where Beetlejuice, you know, inhabits. And then you have the people that bought the house and you've got this like I don't know. It's an interesting style. I mean, I I was looking at some of the shots today and I was just like, Hmm, what was, what was kind of the aesthetic for that
1: third look? It all was derived from uh, the extremely gauche renovation of uh, the house. What had started as a relatively undistinguished, but nevertheless honest looking uh, Victorian with some questionable wallpaper here and there. And, you know, uh, boring furniture had become this postmodern nightmare. Uh, along with that, its windows, some of its windows disappeared, uh, it, its natural light sources had vanished. There weren't a bunch of cozy table lamps sitting around <clears throat> for night work. And so the, the lighting and the camera work went into that same. Surreal shadowy uh weird space uh, and if you if you there, if you look at the shots you'll you'll find out uh you'll see a lot of like where are those shadows coming from and why are those patterns evident well um it it, it worked graphically and, and it was weird it it was something that see on every level, I felt an obligation to I felt an obligation to make it a zany, but uncomfortable fit. And indeed indeed there was no stone left unturned. I mean, and, and Tim was great. He, I don't know how we, it might've been my suggestion, but you know, when Otho, the, the interior uh, decorator, uh, is just appalled by what's happening. And, and, and it's after Beetlejuice has sprung out of the, out of the game with the oversized mallet hands and, both those yeah. he's running out of the the house and a theatrical follow spot opens up and nails yeah. revealing revealing as you well remember his grossly his horrible leisure suit robin zag yeah. leisure <laughs> the guy was always dressed in black you know and on, and there was another extreme lighting effect was after uh and kind of it was a reprise in a way but or maybe it happens before no it happens after the otho spotlight the uh uh the parents are invited out uh to you know uh, he beetlejuice is summoning them to come forth yeah. they and, and and then others come out and eventually the robert grule character and uh, yeah. yeah he gets a Spotlight too, and then, boosh, you know, they're shot up through the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> so that's extremely uh, heavy-handed. A lot of that, but the the shapes, the graphics, the colors, really uh, were important to um, keep the environment of the house weird.
0: Yeah, and I and I can and I can see that. It's like it's like the the blending of the two worlds. Yes. That the, the, the house has become. It starts off with like, you know, it's just a New England home. And then you got the afterlife and then they
1: kind of it's the merging of the two. Yeah. And then we had to follow through with that for the uh, for the New England sequences. And that that was a house that was that was the exterior facade of the house built on a hill. And the the Mm -hmm. deck and the uh, they have the that one uh, at the end of the deck is that one sort of nominal wall element with clapboard and a window in it it's just like stuck on it doesn't make any sense so I got the idea and this is a typical of what Tim would support and I I I know it's because the idea that was proffered was what he liked it very much if if I proposed something that he felt was not going to work in the movie he would have been the first to say it but in that case One of my favorite shots Uh, didn't even involve any lighting, but we start massaging, panning across this bucolic landscape. Then the camera pulls back and reveals the white clappard. We pull back further and we see the two parents sitting bored out of their minds in their wicker chairs and they carry on some dialogue. But it was my favorite. One of my favorite shots in terms of how we were able to get into it.
0: I always like the shot when the, they're in like the waiting room. It's the afterlife or hell, <laughs> and it just looks. I, I, was the idea just like take the DMV and make that even worse?
1: Yeah. Now the whole it, it was a wonderful experience um, working on the whole show. I, I have to credit my uh, uh, camera operator uh, Douglas Knapp, who who actually photographed um, a lot of the scenes in the waiting room. Uh, I did mm-hmm. the establishing and a certain number of shots I did. But a lot of the shots where they're just sitting in, and these people in various forms of debilitation are sitting bored out of their minds in the chair. The guy with the chicken in his throat yeah. th- on a chicken leg. Uh, and those were shot by Doug because it was done post-production. Yeah, interesting.
0: Did you guys realize when, uh, you know, the big musical scene, uh, you know, around the table, did you guys realize from reading the script, like you were like, this is going to be a moment or it's like, that's...
1: No, but I I will tell you (laughs) one thing I knew, absolutely. I had no premonition from reading the script. On a Friday afternoon, the last thing that we did that day was to rehearse that scene. Yeah. No lights, no camera, but the rehearsal. And the actors... <clears throat> the actors did a phenomenal job and I knew absolutely that it was going to be a, an off the wall, great scene.
0: <laughs> it's like probably one of the most famous scenes in the movie is yeah. that Catherine O'Hara, you know, doing the whole, yeah. <laughs> you're doing a whole, but I, <laughs> I love the little subtlety you got there. They're looking at like, we're not sure what we're doing. And I think that little, that little touch to it adds to it. It's like, they didn't just, completely become different characters they're doing movement of somebody else but they realize there's a realization that we're
1: what are we doing this yeah and 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 lydia who's struggling to keep things normal then then finally she succumbs and it's hilarious i know
0: (laughs) what was michael keaton like on that film
1: brilliant delightful to work with uh always you know he was technically great, you know, yeah. i.e., he, he knew how to play the lens and hit his marks and he understood all that. Yeah. Um, but he he also gave so much to the character. I mean, the Beetlejuice as finally rendered did not exist when we started uh, doing well, that's, prep for the- that's why I
0: just I just listened to an interview talking about that. Like Tim kind of left him alone because he wasn't even sure if he could do it. And he just started looking around. I think Tim Burton said that like he spans all time and space and that somehow that idea jumped in Michael Keaton and he went, he was just kept going with that idea. And it's like, okay, he's going to have mold here whatever. And I guess the first time Tim actually saw him was when he was all in the, all in the getup. And he was like, he's either going to really like this or he's going to hate it. You know? And it was,
1: well, Tim is a brilliant director and, um, Sometimes I think you get performance by giving a certain amount of freedom initially, as long as, I yeah. mean, what, there was no way it was going to it was gonna be a loose cannon that would roll off the deck. But the, you know, costumers, Aggie did a fantastic job and Michael Keaton is a brilliant performer.
0: I mean, this is just, uh, just such an interesting look. And it's such an interesting, you know, just, It's so different. Okay, that about does it for part two of my interview with Tom Ackerman. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank him for coming on. As always, you can find me at Justin Yachts. Stay tuned for part three. Please like, share, and subscribe, and consider giving the YouTube uh, version of this a try. And I will see you next time on the DMF.